Welcome to today's episode of Fire in the Belly. This is where we get to hear some pretty inspiring stories from some amazing people. You know, it's always an absolute pleasure to sit down, take time out and have a warts and all conversation about their journey. I'm always intrigued by what it's taken for people to get to where they are today. And hopefully in this interview, we get to hear some more about that. From this, my mission is to help people to find their own fire in their belly. And from that, to live the mightiest version of you. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy today's guest. Success is a process, not an event. Hello and welcome to Fire in the Belly. Today we have myself, Mighty Pete, and we're joined by Joseph McGuire. Good afternoon, Joseph. Good afternoon, Pete. Delighted to be here. Thank you very much. Yeah, listen, it's awesome to have you on, so I really appreciate it. So tell us, who are you, what are you doing, and where are you from? Right. Okay. I'll just start with the easy ones, eh? <laughs> okay. I'm, uh, I'm originally a dub and back living here for now. Well, I've been back living here for a number of years, but I've moved around a lot. I uh, lived in uh, several countries so far and more to come and in various places in Ireland. I uh, currently, I worked for many years as a complementary therapist and healer, and I currently work as a face reader, a facial profiler for business and people in personal transformation space. Wow, that's interesting. So tell us, I mean, what, what does a face reader do? I'm now self-conscious, <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> oh, no, Peter, you're radiant there. I, I can see it. <laughs> I'll, take it. Um, I'll take it, that's good. Oh, of course, I know. I always dish out the compliments. Um, yeah, I, it's, what I work with is an ancient, uh, it's an ancient Chinese tradition. It's the documentation goes back some 3,000 years, and the understanding is that our facial features reveal a huge amount of information about personality, behavior style, communication patterns, both in terms of how we receive and process communication and then how we communicate externally, stress triggers and responses, uh, parental and ancestral influences, and a lot more besides. I learned it initially as one of the diagnostic tools used in traditional oriental medicine, uh, but uh, rather than simply learning it as a diagnostic tool, I, I learned then also that the, the Chinese had been using it in business and politics over like 3,000 years and probably more. So that was altogether more fascinating for me to have a much broader view of it. In terms of, just out of curiosity, in terms of actually face reading, I mean, how many zones or how many features have we on the face that can be read? It depends on it depends on what way you want to divide the face. You can look at the two vertical zones, the two halves, and the right side of the person's own face is their public persona. The left side is their private persona. But you can also look at it then in terms of parental influences on either side. Um, you can look at it in terms of horizontal zones. So the forehead would be one, which would be essentially to simplify it. You could say the thinking thinking is the forehead zone, the middle section then from the eyebrows down to the tip of the nose would be feeling, and then from the tip of the nose down to be chin. But um, if you want to be much more specific, uh, for another project I was working on, I listed what was it, 168 individual features or combination features, or variations in features rather that I can identify and read something from. And so I'm getting straight in, straight into this. But <laughs> is, is this um, would would this then be a true reflection of? what the person's thinking or, or what, what do you read when you say you're reading, what, what are you looking at? Okay. It's not necessarily so much about what the person is currently thinking. Hmm. It's more patterns in terms of how they're likely to behave, how they traditionally behave. Uh, the eyes in particular will tell me a lot about where they've come from emotionally, where they're at, uh, where they're likely to be going. There's an old Chinese saying that if you don't change direction, you'll end up where you're headed. 
So it tells the, the eyes, the eyes, but whether, whether one thinks in metaphysical terms, like the eyes are the windows to the soul, um, the eyes reveal so much about who the person really is. But that's, that's a, I guess, a skill I've cultivated over the last, I guess, 40 years at this stage and really being able to read the eyes in particular. But it's not so much, as I say, it's not so much about what the person is actually thinking right now. It's their habitual pattern of thinking their system of thinking, whether the more uh, whether the more linear thinking, whether the more creative, abstract, whether the people who like things in bullet points or like you know twenty six volumes, uh, the old Encyclopedia Britannica, um, whether people are going to be much more uh, direct and expressive, or whether they're going to be held back and more more sort of dependent or more autocratic or I mean, empathetic, non empathetic, all those things are revealed in the static facial features and a lot more besides. That's interesting, you know, and you, you mentioned static there. I mean, are you looking at condition or is it just the movement of or the, the, the actual response to okay. something? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Well, the, the, the system I learned initially was very much about the static facial features. Um, but I've, over the years, particularly working as a therapist, I learned a lot about body language and movement and gestures and expressions. So I've added that in as well. So um, I, I'm, life is a continuous process of study anyway. Uh, like the moment you think you've got something, you're deluded. <laughs> so there's always more to learn. Like, again, I, I've been so influenced over the years by so many aspects of um, Oriental philosophy, uh, particularly Taoism, but also, also Zen. And there's an old saying, you know, Zen mind, beginner's mind. So if you always see yourself as the perpetual student, even if, you know, like some people have told me I'm a master of this, but I don't see it in those terms because I think that would be falling into a very strange trap mm. where to me, it's a continuous process of learning and every face I see will show me something I haven't seen before. That's amazing. Yeah. And that constant evolution side, it's, well, I mean, I'm going to, you know, is it something that you're passionate about and something you obviously believe in? Cause it seems you're, 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 you're sort of hunger, hungry for it is what comes across. Yeah. I don't get caught up in belief. Um, because to me, belief is a, again a, like a putting putting oneself in a box or putting an idea or uh, putting one's thoughts in a box. Where I'd rather I'd rather be I'm more concerned with knowing than believing, and I'd rather look um, point something out and then or check find something, observe something, and then look for the evidence. Uh, like when when I was studying initially, I was taught the philosophy of non credo. Um, I had Latin beaten into me in school. So it's one, one of the things I do remember. With non-credo means I do not believe. So I'm not interested in I'm not interested in what I or anybody else believes really. It's really what's you know, what do you see and where's the evidence? That's amazing, yeah. So because I mean that's slightly contradictory probably to complementary therapies as well, because quite often you can't necessarily prove it per se in the scientific form. So it's, it's, it's more of a feeling. It's more of that side. Have I picked that up correctly? Well, it's interesting what we perceive as science. Science is not homogenous and science is not, science is not necessarily definitive anyway. Mm. Uh, like science is a continuous process of exploring. And one of the common statements an honest scientist will make is I don't know. And it's a continuous process of learning, discovering, unraveling, unlearning as well. Um, so uh, and if you look at, like, I, I have a fascination with uh, 
not so much quantum mechanics or quantum physics because I don't, I don't have a, a, a conventional scientific background and I don't pretend to understand it, but I have a fascination with the lives of so many and the philosophies and the thinking processes and the outlooks of so many uh, eminent quantum physicists or people of that, that ilk who are particularly there in the, the first half of the last century. And it's interesting how many of them, like particularly um, Einstein, uh, Werner Heisenberg uh, and Schrodinger, how, how they acknowledged that, and uh, Niels Bohr as well, how, um, how they acknowledged how heavily they were influenced by reading the ancient uh, Indian scriptures, the Bhagavad Gita, and how that, and that's not proving anything definitively. Like, like those scriptures are not looking to prove anything definitively. I mean, they make statements, but it's not scientifically proven in the, in the narrow sense. But they, they acknowledged how much it helped them understand physics which is actually quite fascinating in itself. Because, I mean, I've once heard somebody describing physics as, what is it? It's, it's laws that just haven't been disproven yet. You know, <laughs> to say physics is a live science, which sort of, it doesn't necessarily feel about right, but does that make sense? It does, it does. Again, I'm, I'm not the person to ask about conventional science, but I have, I would say I have a, I have a reasonably scientific outlook mm. in that I'm continually asking questions. And I'm rarely satisfied with the answer. I don't tend to see answers as definitive. And scientists will also talk about the half-life, half-life of facts. And that a fact, a fact has a certain period of life to, until, it, until it is disproven. Mm. It's like a good rumor, eh? You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 it's a very significant half-life. You, you, um, interestingly, you, you split and you, and you separated there knowing and believing. Can you Can you give us your sort of... Uh, comparison on that and take on that if you would okay um i guess i was i was brought up i was brought up as a in a very conservative irish catholic family where so much was based on belief um obviously we can't um in any kind of absolute laboratory type terms prove the existence of god etc um but uh a Somebody who is a, shall we say, a devout Catholic will believe and will believe in the, the power of the sacraments, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and yet, yeah, how can I put it? Um, it's a great question, actually. Um, <laughs> my, yeah, my. I've, I guess I've seen so many people um, who would be devout in their in their religious beliefs, and I, I would have I would have mixed with so many different communities. Actually, I would have had a lot of um, Jewish friends over the years, or um, uh, people of various different Christian faiths, um, or even even Buddhists. Uh, although Buddhism, I suppose, is strictly not, not strictly speaking a religion, uh, but who would be very devout and would would um, who would yeah who would be very convinced of the rightness of their scriptures, etc. Even though there isn't, there isn't, there isn't tangible proof as such. But they would, they would say that their lives are and how their lives are going as evidence. Even though to a not to a, an impartial observer such as myself, who doesn't have a who doesn't have a religious outlook, um, I would often say that their lives are the quality of their lives is questionable but they would say God is looking after them. Where to me, a knowing is there is, there's, there's two different aspects. There's the intellectual knowing where we have, we have tangible proof of something. Like one and one leads to, adds, adds up to two. Or we, we, uh, we can say that 
we're looking at a screen here, we can see we can see the screen, so we know that that is the screen. Um, but there's also a, a deeper internal knowing, which to me is again I can't absolutely prove it, but there's um, there's a knowing of knowing of when we meet somebody for the first time, for example. Um, there's a knowing that there's in some cases there's an absolutely profound connection there. It's a, whether you call it a good feeling or whatever, it doesn't really matter. But there's a there's to me when that that inner knowing is there when when it's clearly there then there's a there's a quality there's a feeling of almost being outside of space and time there's a quality of deep peace there's a quality of ease there's a quality of complete relaxation um, that is not there when one is simply thinking about something or when is some when is something when somebody is believing something that's probably a very vague explanation but it's probably the best i could do right now no, I mean it does make it makes a lot of sense, you know. I suppose it's it's understanding that you know it again whether we take it on, whether it's something we experience, whether we you know it's what's going on around us, and and also how it's presented to us, you know. Because yeah. for some people, their upbringing and, and when they're told to believe something, you know, if you're if you're told to believe it, then you may well conform, or you may well choose not to. So it, yeah. it just very much varies. Before we get really into it, and we already have, but um, <laughs> what, what does Fire in the Belly mean to you? Well, I, again, I, I've been so influenced by Chinese philosophy, and I, I worked with and studied the five elements or the five transformations for many years. And fire is associated with the heart. And fire for me is very much, fire is for me heart energy. Um, I know we can, talk, we can talk about fire in the belly, but... Uh, Fire for me is heart energy, and heart energy represents itself in so many different ways. Like one of my one of my favorite heart memories, as such, is uh, I was working as a therapist many years ago in what was then the family home, and I was working I was working in an upstairs bedroom with a with a, with a client, and I heard laughter from downstairs. My son was probably about six at the time, and I heard this continuous laughter, and afterwards I found out he had just watched the first ever episode of Mr. Bean. And that to me is one of my favorite heart memories, that just the sound of my son continuously laughing. And that to me, that to me is fire. Uh, fire, is also, um, fire is also the passion I get from going, the, the sheer joy I get from going for a run. It's, um, it's discovery of a new food. It's, 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 the, it's the connection with very special people in my life. When I'm talking with them and I'm looking and, and we're making eye contact, um, it's when I'm when I'm at work and I I make an observation about somebody and I see the them light up and it's it's that they have a realization about something that that they needed to understand about themselves that had just not slotted into place yet. Um, a fire in the belly is new new discoveries that I discover whether it's a new piece of music or I read something and I have a realization that. You know, something that absolutely grabs my attention, and I have to know more about it. So there's so many variations there, um, and I, and that's one of the things I love about that whole idea of fire because it, um, fire to me covers a multitude. It can be a, it can be a, a blaze, which is just raging and destroying something, or it can be a tiny flame which creates a light, or it can be something which like a campfire which nurtures people. So I can see all the variations in fire. And it's, I love, that's one of the things that the way my mind works, I love variety. So to be able to see it in a lot of different ways is something that just satisfies me personally anyway. 
Isn't it funny too, I suppose, with humans, I mean, fire is fire and how we choose to apply it is yeah. our choice too. You know, it's, that's it. as you say, it can be lovely, romantic, connecting. It can be exactly the polar opposite too. Yeah, and even if we look at the even if you look at the, 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 the bushfires in Australia at the beginning of the year, which obviously caused absolute havoc and killed off a lot of wildlife, did huge damage in terms of human life and uh, habitat, etc. But then you look at how nature is regenerating. So sometimes a really destructive fire can bring about massive positive change as well. Um, so it's it's having a perspective that says, well, maybe it's not all bad. And from, you know, what, where does the belly come into play in, in, in your world? Oh, so many different ways. Um, I guess I would have been conscious of gut feeling a long time ago. But then when I, again, when I was introduced to uh, my initial training in London was as a shiatsu practitioner. And in shiatsu and in many martial arts, particularly the Japanese martial arts, we talk about the hara, which is the, the lower belly. Which and, and the Anhara is often referred to as the sea or seat of intuition. And if you look at even images of the Buddha, uh, where he has this massive big belly, it's that he probably didn't look anything like that. He probably he was probably very skinny, actually, judging by what he apparently ate or how little he ate. But it's, the belly is, is, is represented as being so large because his intuition was so great he could hardly hold it. So for me, the belly is, the belly is very, very powerful intuition and very very clean intuition if i can put it that way and how how would your intuition be in general when i get out of my own way it's very good indeed sometimes i sometimes i uh, yeah sometimes i get in my own way and but i'm i'm learning more and more and to to fine-tune it mm. um i've certainly i've certainly messed up a few times in my life that's that's pretty clear but uh the more I get out of my way and the more, again, the more, I, the more I open up to that heart energy, the heart energy for myself is more as much as reflecting it outwards, the cleaner my intuition is and the, the, the more accurate and the more quickly I, I respond to it and really pay attention. You mentioned five areas there in terms of, you know, heart energy is one of them. What, what are the other four? The, in terms of the, the oriental system, mm -hmm. the, well, we talk about, um, we talk about uh, fire, earth, metal, water, and wood. And each of, those, each of those elements is associated with a particular pair of organs, for example, but also with particular areas of emotion, particular aspects of our mental processes, seasons of the year. So it's a very, it's a very interrelated, holistic perspective on things. And they talk about, they talk about the five transformations. But also, but within that, there's, there's the cycle of harmony, or the, or the cycle of control, or the cycle of destruction. So it's it's very much about seeing life as a whole and how we um, how we engage with life, how how we create harmony within ourselves. And if we're out of harmony, then we have this destructive element coming in, and we we experience it on the personal level as stress and often illness. Mm. Well. You mentioned, I mean, a lot of this is coming from sort of a Chinese, it's not philosophies, what is it, Chinese? Yeah. yeah. Is that, I mean, is that the sort of the home of it as far as you're concerned in terms of that sort of levels of understanding? Yeah, that's where, that's where it originated. Uh, certainly the, and again, I, I say I've just been massively influenced by so much of that, uh, the, the philosophy going back several thousand years. Um, and a lot of like Buddhism, 
uh, obviously originated of, you know, in India, but it moved to China. And then Zen Buddhism came from China. So a lot of Japanese culture, although they won't necessarily want to <laughs> openly admit it, originated in China as well. So China has been, um, what everyone thinks about China as it is now, uh, China has been the, 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 the I guess, what, what did I put it, the, almost like the, the, the pregnant belly for so many I can't that's probably a much better term but I can't think of another one at the minute for so many things that have, 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 have had a massive and still have a massive influence on the West yeah it's interesting even what you were saying in terms of how you've gone through you know in, in terms of your own complementary therapy and and how you've ended up to where you are I mean do, do you feel that you are where you're supposed to be at this time um, I'm not sure about that whole idea of supposed to be. One is where one is. Um, I, I, there's, there's, so, there's, there's what we often refer to as conventional wisdom, but I'm not always sure that there is wisdom in that. Uh, I think it's one of those throwaway terms we use. So I am where I am, and it's a case of um, do I accept where I am or do I, do I stress about it and fight against it, uh, or do I, have a, do I have a much bigger vision? For where I where I wish to be, um, and you know the the, the Carl Jung uh, quote, um, "I'm not what happened to me; I'm what I choose to become." So I'm looking at who do I choose to become, and recognizing that I have power to choose, and there's recognizing that again, it may not be obviously something tangible, but deciding with clarity about who I wish to become, and aligning that with the intuition. Um, and aligning that with heart energy as well. And the, the three brains, as are as being proven in the neuroscience, um, opens, opens up something else that is not so tangible, but is certainly allowing, for want of a better term, magic to happen. I was even going to try and get, do some, say something clever, like saying, you know, do you, do, you, do you know that you're on the right path? Do you know that you're, you're going, or do you believe you're... you're fulfilling your potential or getting towards what your purpose is if that's if that's a fair thing yeah well the evidence as it's presenting to me is that yes i am very much on very much on course and again i prefer course rather than path or uh, a lot of people say they're on track i'd rather track is track is a very linear thing and like a train on a track it can't deviate from the course but i'd rather i'd rather see myself as being on course where it means I'm, I have the capacity to adapt as and when needed, uh, like, a, like a boat on the ocean, I guess. Um, so yes, the evidence for me is like there are opportunities, business opportunities presenting that wouldn't have happened a year ago, two years ago, because I wasn't as clear within myself. Um, there are friendships happening. There are relationships happening. Um, there, are, there are just so many opportunities and, and uh, people of, shall we say, greater influence coming into my life who are able to, who are willing and able to open doors for me that I wouldn't have been ready for. And I'm simply having a lot more fun with the whole experience of life. So yes, I'm on course. Well, that's awesome to, to know. And I'm curious then to leave it back to, in terms of, you know, sort of face rating and, and that side, you know, what's my question? My question is, do people know themselves? I mean, are you seeing something they're not even aware of in them that's, I don't know, their dislikes, their their likes, their habits, whatever? Are you, or are they conscious, do you think? 
by and large, no, not in my experience. And I, it took me, it took me a while from working as a therapist. People were coming to me from all sorts of different backgrounds, and um, like from so-called ordinary backgrounds, like housewives or um, shop workers, then up to to people who were multimillionaires, you know, business owners, entrepreneurs, etc. And people from just so many different walks of life, uh, very eminent professionals as well, and so often. I would ask them, how do you feel? And they said, I don't know. And they're not aware of their bodies. It's just, they're so, they're so caught up in their heads. And so much of that is conditioning, whether it's, whether it's present day conditioning, past conditioning. And obviously, if they're coming to me as a therapist, they're highly stressed about something. Um, and quite often, as I say, that's so much of that is based on old triggers old conditioning from whether it's childhood, et cetera, et cetera, doesn't really matter. Um, but people by and large are not really present to themselves. And I can understand why mindfulness has become such a, a buzzword, how, how mindful people are being in their mindfulness, I don't know. Uh, but certainly I can understand why it has become so, so popular in, in, in modern life because, again, and it's, it's anecdotal, but my, my observation over many, many years is that by and large people are not really present to themselves, are not really conscious of um, even where they're really at and, um, and where, they, where they could be at, what their potential is, and how they can really open up so much more to themselves, not simply to other people and the world, but to themselves, and really, really um, I guess, rejoice in being who they are. Because I mean that's that's surely is a huge topic to be present to yourself and to to yeah, you know, to be to be conscious of you and uh, okay maybe try it the other way is why would you not be conscious to yourself? Again, my observation um, is that so many people get caught up in like an educational system, for example, um, which is designed towards bringing people either into academia or into a career of some kind and fitting into a uh, preordained or pre-designed system with pre-designed, preordained expectations. And particularly then if one comes from a family where that has been the pattern, that that's what the parents or grandparents have lived, that, that is often the expectation rather than actually looking out and saying, well, there's a much bigger world out there. Now we have far greater options available to us now in terms of like what the internet can provide, for example, or uh, so many variations on different stations, et cetera, et cetera, social media, where um, I'd, I'd, I'd imagine you're a fair bit younger than me, but certainly when I was growing up, we didn't, we obviously not, not only did not, not have an internet, we didn't have a TV until I was, I think, 17 or something like that, 16, 17. So we just had radio and which was, a very small number of channels, and then a couple of broadsheet newspapers and the library. So um, we, had, we had relatively limited options in that regard in terms of what was seen as possible, what was understood as being possible. Now, somehow I've, I kind of filtered my way out of that system. Um, but for so many people, the, they seem to be caught up in the, in the conditioning. And that's, that's, that's an observation. That's not a judgment, by the way. 
um, uh, that so many people seem to be caught in the, the conditioning and expectation and not not thinking beyond that or, or being whether it's being fearful of thinking beyond it or simply not interested I don't know but that's that's my general observation it, I don't want to lead you into it, I suppose but the question is what what's your take on the likes of social media and stuff these days I mean what's do you have a an opinion <laughs> there's a lot of a lot of these questions start the answer starts with it depends um, it depends on how one uses it what one's involvement is what one's purpose is in using it um, there's a lot i i mean clearly when one submits and i've used that term advisedly to submit so to social media one has limited control in terms of what one is presented with in terms of the options in terms of what posts are presented etc because the 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 powers that be facebook google etc etc they they control the algorithms and they vary them from time to time so um one will often just tend to see certain people's names repeated posts repeated types of posts repeated um and i personally don't have the i don't have the time or the interest to start trying to work out the technicalities beyond that so i i engage to the level i want to engage at and i, I i'm very selective i'm quite discerning and really i think we have to be we have to be very wary of the fact that and very aware of the fact that we are not in control of what's what's presented to us so we have a choice. We have choices to make as to what we're willing to submit ourselves to. I mean, the sheer, I suppose, power of combinations and all the rest. That you throw in, you know, what somebody wants to be perceived out of what they want to communicate, and then you throw in on top of that sort of potential financial gain or benefit or social gain or benefit from something else, and then you throw in the sort of, you know, that how the algorithms and stuff want us to be viewed or viewing, and uh, that throws up millions of more billions probably of different permutations and yet we can barely understand ourselves let alone take this whole additional yeah sort of potential transactions in on board as well too right yeah and like if if we're if we're if we believe what we're told that the the mind can only process something like five pieces of information at one time give or take plus or minus two and yet we're being continually bombarded with these thousands or millions of pieces of information, then it's very easy to become completely overwhelmed and swamped and simply lose track again of who one is and that whole thing of self-consciousness or self-awareness and being able to decide and discern with at least some reasonable degree of clarity about who one is, what one wants, what one's priorities are, etc. And do that from a place of being relaxed rather than stressed because social media is clearly inducing so much stress in people. And one can see that in a lot of what people are posting, and especially mm. now. It's interesting you brought that up, because uh, just recently there, I was um, doing some research, and I think Mel Robbins was talking about it, and, and, and I don't know who she referenced back, but they're saying that the mind, if I can get this right, so in the mind uh, per minute can take on, it's like 11 million pieces of information, unconsciously but uh -huh. consciously we can only process about 50 
So if, if as a ratio of one to the other, that's, I, I can't do the math, but it's yeah. something like 0 0.00 to, you know, to, to yeah. sort of, you know, comparison. So, you know, if ever we thought that our brains were quite clever, that's, that's a good sign as any, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And then you've got, uh, like in my, in my presentations, I will often, I, I, I will almost inevitably actually refer to um, the invisible gorilla. You know that one? No. The, 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 it was a, an experiment done in 1999 originally by two American psychologists, Shabri and Simons, and they set up a basketball game and they had two control groups and one group had to count the times, the number of times the team at white tops touched or passed the ball and the other control group had to count the, the number of times the team in black tops touched or passed the ball. And in the middle of the game, a guy dressed in a gorilla suit walked onto the middle of the court, beat his chest several times and walked off again. And after the game, 46% of the total control group did not believe anybody in a gorilla suit had been anywhere near the court. And that study has been replicated numerous times. But they, uh, Shabri and Simons coined the term inattentional blindness. And I think that's an absolutely wonderful, wonderful term because it describes so much of what's going on in people's lives. Like you walk down the average street, even people now with their masks on, um, you'll see how many people will you see staring into their phones or listening, listening to something on, you know, as they're walking down the street. So they're, they're largely oblivious. They may know where they're going, but they're largely oblivious to the surroundings. So, um, and, then, and, then, and then it's the continuous, the continuous bombardment of stimuli of one kind or another. So um, it's, it's, it, we're almost in, you know, a science fiction kind of stage really. It is, uh, and and again, it's hard to. Uh, well, I struggle to get a sort of a good sense of what the overall population is. I suppose for me, I'm getting to different levels of awareness and thoughts, and you know, maybe I'm sort of you know, social media again has a different meaning to me now than it maybe did a couple of years ago, and I see different things. But do you think overall, is it, the population is evolving and changing and morphing, or do you think it's it's just maybe us as individuals are changing? Um, I, I find that hard to gauge, to be honest with you. Mm. Um, I instinctively suspect that we as individuals are changing, many of us anyway. Um, whether, there's, whether there is a, a huge polarization happening or whether there's a, some bigger evolution happening, I simply don't know. I don't have, I don't have enough evidence um, but it's, we're certainly, um, you know, the old Chinese course, may you live in interesting times. We're certainly living in very interesting times. No, oh, I like that. <laughs> well, why is it a curse? That's the... <laughs> well, um, I, don't know what, I don't know why specifically it's a curse. Um, mm. Maybe the, like, I don't know what the, the origin of, the, of the, 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 the phrase was, but... Um, it's 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 presented as being as being a curse. So mm. I just take it. But that's uh, that's my homework now. Mm. That's where it came from. Well, it's interesting too because I mean, even I don't know. I just said it unintentionally. Uh, you know, people would say the word interesting. Actually, it it doesn't necessarily. It isn't invoking a positive or a negative. It's just something uh -huh. they're trying to compute. You know, yeah. so interesting is okay. You know, rather than going, it's not. Uh, invoking a strong enough reaction to to be positive or negative yeah and even even how one how one uh, the tone in which one uses the word interesting mm, 
interesting. <laughs> like it conveys that, that conveys a multitude as well. So sure. uh, it may have been how it was originally said. In your mind, then, so I mean, if you are, you know, you're reading faces and going to that, are you matching it and 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 collating it and yeah, collating it to the words as well? I mean, do, do the words is that just surface level and actually just confirms what you're thinking, or do the two tally? It depends on the context in which I'm doing it. Like if I'm if I'm doing it, if I'm called to sit in on an interview or negotiation, for example, then it's a it's looking for the congruency between the words and the and the facial features and the expression and the body language, um, because that there's a there's a famous study done by uh, Albert Morabian back in 1970 at UCLA, and it's often it very often misquoted, where you'll hear so many people saying that only seven percent of the words spoken are, you know, conveyed meaning. But really, the, the original study was about was about congruency. And that it was it was whether people were congruent in their body language, their tonality and inflection and syntax, and the language. That that was the important thing. And if you if you notice or pick up on any incongruency, then that's where you really start to pay attention to: Is this person does they do they really mean what they say? Um, are they really being upfront, or are they hiding something, etc.? So. Um, it's it's looking at it. It's looking at it in, in context, really. Um, if it's a if it's a one to one, if it's an individual session where people come to me for like a, an individual reading, um, then by and large they're not speaking. So I'm just taking the information from their face. Or I do have um, I do have clients who um, they could be employers or very often their business coaches or executive coaches where they will send me a photo of somebody. And the stipulation there is that I get no information beyond the photo, no name, no role, nothing. And I have to write up a profile based on the photo. Now it has to be a really good quality facial shot, but uh, where I can see the, the, not just the features, but any lines, marks, etc., uh, very, very clearly. Uh, and I have to write up a profile based on that. That's that's baffling because I mean surely I can be smiling or not smiling or that's irrelevant know. to me. Well, okay. Yeah, that's irrelevant. So it's more would that okay with smiling or facial reactions? Is that a is that a conscious behavior as opposed to subconscious? It depends. Again, it depends on the context, and so much of body language is contextual. Um, like when if we're talking about body language specifically, as opposed to reading faces um, or body language, and that, that would include facial expression, you know, movement, etc. Um, we have to look at what we call base, we have to identify what we call baseline behavior, which is how somebody's behaving when there's nothing at stake. And it's just like casual conversation or they're just doing nothing in particular. And we note what's, what's their norm. And then if, if the situation changes so that it it's um, there's a challenge or there's a, a stress for for whatever reason it's a it's an interview it's a negotiation it's a sale something like that um, then we notice any obvious changes we pay attention to any obvious changes any changes in pattern particularly not just single gestures but 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 pattern and that can be that can be in the breathing that can be in the tone that can be um, in 
in the, the pitch of the voice. It can be that the jaw tightens. It can be that they, they move forward or they move away. There's so many variations, but context is so important. Whereas with reading the static facial features, um, that's, that's a whole different thing because we're not concerned with movement. That's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, in terms of what, what do we tend to, um, I was going to say react to, what, what, what sort of moods or what sort of things tends to be most obvious? Moods. As in, if, you, if you're reading a face, I mean, what, you know, I don't know, I suppose, well, how, how would you categorize? What, what do you categorize? What's, what's the output from, from your, you know, your assessments? Okay, well, I'm looking at the, I'm looking at the overall personality traits. And um, like modern psychology tells us that there are no defined personalities as such. Now we get, you know, we get um, psychometric testing, which often puts people in boxes. Um, but it has, in my, my experience, um, uh, shall we say, distinct limit limitations. Um, but what I'm looking at is basic personality traits tendencies excuse me um typical behavior style which again will be revealed in the, the facial features and then the context in the context in which i'm looking will determine how i how i describe those tendencies so for example if it's a if it's an interview situation um i will be looking at uh, and, and I, will, I will obviously need to know not just the role but the company culture so I will need to, then I'll be looking at whether, again, as I mentioned, like whether somebody is a much, um, how they're going to work in it, how they're going to operate in a team, because facial features can tell you who's going to be a, a, a team player or who's going to be a, a DIY type, um, who's going to be really driven, who's going to, who's going to need a lot of support, um, who's a good communicator, who's, who are the empathetic types, Who's, who are the autocratic types? Um, there's so many, so many variations, but so many, so much information available in the facial features. So context is important in terms of why am I, why am I doing this? And is this are these live features as such? You know, I mean, can someone can someone's facial features change? You know, instantly, or are these sort of built up patterns and and uh, I don't know looks that have come over time. I can't say that I've seen anybody's features change instantly. I'd be very surprised. I'd be fascinated if, if I were to see that. Um, usually the features will evolve over time. Like, for example, um, I don't know how clearly you can see me now, but I've got quite a collection of horizontal lines across the forehead and a few vertical ones as well. I obviously wasn't born with those. They evolved over time. But in term, for, from a face reading perspective, they're all huge. They're, they provide volumes of information about me. If you know how to read them, like when when I met one of my, I guess my most influential teacher of more recent times, um, and she's she is half Chinese and learned the art of face reading literally at her Chinese grandmother's knee, and her grandmother was advising all the Chinese business people in the local community in San Francisco. Um, so when she, so she learned it there and then, and then went and studied the ancient texts. But when she met me first, she looked at me and she said, what happened? Asked me, what happened when you were 28 that had a negative impact on your finances? And I had to think about it for a moment and said, oh yeah, and I got married. 
<laughs> so, so there's so much information that can be read if one knows how to read it. And um, I, I grew up, even though we didn't have a TV, I would often have access to, to um, friends' homes where they did have a TV or um, the school I went to, uh, the, um, the primary school I went to, they, they had films on in the school hall every Friday and Saturday afternoon, and a lot of those were westerns, which is obviously great for a kid growing up, my, certainly my age anyway. And I particularly had a fascination with the trackers, the people who could read sign. You know, they'd look at the ground and be able to say, oh, yeah, there were, there were four men went that way, and, and this, horse, this horse was lame, and so, you know, all that stuff. And so I see myself as being sort of almost following on that kind of lineage. Um, so the face is revealing a lot about the life path, um, like there's the, this, this may, hope this isn't going on too, off too much of a tangent here, but the, the Chinese, again, system recognizes the, the face as being like a life map. So the, the ears represent the first 14 years of life, and then you have the, the teenage years, the 20s, 30s, 40s. So depending on where the marks are, you can tell a lot about what period of life something happened and how deeply it impacted or otherwise. Well. Yeah, it's. Uh, I suppose, and, and I, again, as someone sort of said previously, it's it, it's a it's a, it's a good topic too because my favorite my favorite topic is talking about me type thing. You know, so I suppose, <laughs> yeah. You know, we can't help but think, God, I wonder what you know. What am I? What am I giving off? What am I doing? You know. Sure. Uh, it's uh, take us right back. I mean, who's Junior Joseph? You know what. <laughs> Where did this all start, and and you know, give us a sort of a, an overview of of how you got to where you are. Okay, um, I guess briefly, I remember like I I do remember a very small child when like sitting on the floor in my parents' home, and probably before I could even speak, knowing that I could pick up a lot of that I was picking up a lot of information um, about the adults around me, but particularly the men. For some reason, I could I could read, and I'm not like not like intimate details. I'm not, like I obviously wouldn't have had the tools to, to recognize them anyway, but uh, knowing that I could read a lot about character, maybe character and personality and who was, who, was being, who was being real and who was hiding stuff. And I just instinctively picked that up. And then when my father started to bring me to football matches, I think from probably the age of four or five, I realized I could, I could see a lot of the patterns that were developing in the games. I just assumed everybody was doing it until I don't even know what age I realized they weren't. So instinctively, I was, I was reading a lot in terms of movement and energy patterns in, in people. Um, and then when I moved uh, to London and started to study, um, it was like, I'm home. Because I realized there was a system into which I could fit at least some of what I was in, intuitively and had instinctively been doing since, since as, you know, as far back as I could remember. Um, and it just made so much sense to me that the, the Chinese had been doing this, this intuitively for at least 3,000 years. And obviously they didn't have anything like the diagnostic instruments we would have nowadays. So they had to be using intuition and observation um, and using it to a very high level. So, um, that's the, there wasn't a, there was, certainly wasn't a master plan on my part, part. It just evolved the way it did. Was there a, a, 
this level of reading, I mean, did that did that come apparent in, in either your parents or anything else? And or was there anyone no. around you sort of showing similar traits? No. No, no. No. Not that not that I was aware of anyway. Uh, certainly never introduced to anybody like that. And was so it I never quite fitted really. So I, I was always kind of an outlier. Hmm. Well, how was that as a kid? I mean, because kids t- generally tend to struggle a little bit if they are outliers. Not, not, not necessarily struggle, but they're just different. Yeah, I was certainly different. Um, and I suppose the one thing that helped me fit in was playing football. I absolutely loved football. Like, my, as I said, my father introduced me to football at a very young age. And I can remember playing on the street with a leather football at the age from the age of four. And I immersed myself in that. So the fact that I that I loved football and was relatively good at it was my way of fitting because there were enough kids around. There were always enough kids around who loved playing football. So that was that was where I fitted. But as a in terms of how I was viewing life, I don't know that I uh, and I pro- and I had a sh- I had a, I had a, I had a sense of humour. I had a sharp tongue, and slagging was slagging was just something we all did. So I could fit in with that. But in terms of but I was definitely, I used it as a weapon to protect myself as well, because I was certainly a lot more sensitive than I, I, than I allowed other people to see. But that did cut me off as well. So there was the, there was the outgoing side in terms of the football and, and the slagging. And then there was the whole other side, which didn't find expression. So what was Junior Joseph going to do when he grew up? <laughs> The only, yeah, the only thing I could see myself doing was becoming a professional soccer player. And it took me a long time to realize that I was never going to be one. Um, I, I, was, I, was probably, I was probably 19, 20 when I, like I was, I was, in many ways, I was really innocent about the world. And uh, it, was probably, it was probably that age before I realized it ain't going to happen. And in retrospect, I'm very glad it didn't because it's a world that I would not have fitted in. Um, it's interesting to see nowadays you have footballers who are becoming socially conscious, uh, like Marcus Rashford across the, across the water with the, uh, making sure the school meals are there and feeding hungry, hungry kids, etc. And uh, Juan Mata with the 1% to help with world hunger. Uh, but certainly... When I was growing up, there was there would have been none of that. It was all, you know, it was all lads' culture and and beer and all of that, and that would not have been good for me. So um, I'm very glad life didn't present me that option. So straight then from from school over to was you went straight over to London then studying? No, no, I um, I I spent I basically spent the last two years in secondary school looking out the window with a permanent headache. Uh, because I just I was just stressed about life and waiting for the next football game, so I did. I had an appallingly bad leaving search because um, I just didn't connect. And if we were given an essay to write and told the topic, I would write a topic. I write on the topic, but from my own perspective, which never got me high marks. Um, so um, anyway, so there, so there was that. So. I left school and I was I was basically on the dole for a number of months and then I got a job in what was then a record and tape distribution company. Uh, that's that ages me. So um, I was working as in the warehouse there for a number of years and then became warehouse manager, in fact, warehouse manager and shop steward simultaneously, which was 
kind of a, an interesting uh, thing of wearing two almost decidedly antagonistic hats. Um, and actually, interestingly, I was, I, I was talking with somebody about this recently. I was there. Our company had the distribution rights to the soundtrack album for The Life of Brian. And when, when that film came out, it was banned in Ireland. And the company had the decision to make as to whether to actually release the soundtrack album on the Irish market or not. And I can remember actually taking phone calls. Like we would not, we would not have been, um, like we weren't RCA or CBS or one of the, those sort of obviously named companies where they were as a private company. So I'm not sure how the word got out as to that, but our name and that we were the distributors. But I remember taking phone calls from people threatening to burn us down if we released the, the album and, and, and opening letters in the morning, you know, in standard green ink, again, threatening to burn us, burn us out if we released the album. So, uh, so it wasn't, it, even the soundtrack album wasn't released here. But um, yeah, so I had four and a half years there and then the company closed down. So it was made redundant and I used a uh, portion of the redundancy money to do something I'd always wanted to do, which was go to Israel and spend time in the kibbutz. So I did that before I made it, made it my way to London. Because that's like a normal thing to do, right? <laughs> it was at the time. It was at the time. Yeah, absolutely. I knew people had been, and I'd always been a voracious reader. So I'd read so much about, and I loved reading about history and social history. And I'd read so much about the, the whole period of the Holocaust and, and even prior to that, the whole the history of Palestine, et cetera, as it was. And then, then the, the the whole history of the formation of the, the state of Israel and what happened afterwards. So I, I, I was just fascinated with that. And I suppose probably also being Irish and having grown up um, with the whole 1916 and Irish history thing in my background, um, I had this uh, thing of supporting or feeling connected to the underdog. And I saw Israel as the underdog at the time. Not now, but at, at the time. Yeah. And and as I say, I knew people had been to Israel and spent time on one road of the kibbutzim. So I, I, I just so, I just it was a beacon calling me really. And what, what did you learn? What what, what was the the beacon and what was the insight? Um, I suppose there were several things. It was great to be ex- like Ireland was very monoculturish. It was, Ireland for me was a very great place. We were that was nineteen eighty when I left, and we were we were starting to head into a very dark period anyway i couldn't see a future here so i when i got to israel i was in this really beautiful environment we were in the jordan valley so every every morning and evening it's every morning you'd see the most amazing sunset and every our sunrise rather and every sunrise was different every sunset was different and you see the most glorious colors over the hills i was exposed to people from so many different uh, nationalities and cultures uh, which again you would not have got in Ireland at the time. So that was, I mean, that was life affirming. That was, that was just opening my mind up to so many possibilities. Um, I probably got, I probably started to develop more confidence because dealing with Israelis, I mean, obviously I wasn't just dealing with Israelis, but dealing with Israelis, you had to be upfront with them, otherwise they'd walk on you because that was just how they were. Um, but if you stood up to them, they respected you. So um, and you could have fun with them. So that was a huge life lesson. Um, I also learned what landmines are for. That's kind of a a, a, a byproduct, as, as as it were. But because we were on the border with Jordan, with Jordan rather, 
And we were, so um, in our work every morning, we would be driving by these electrified fences with mines, landmines. You could see them um, between the between the fences. So that was where I learned, as I say, what landmines are for. And do you know what they're for? They're not designed to kill people. They're designed to maim with the idea that um, the, 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 the government will have to spend more money taking care of those who are maimed and injured that they no longer have to use for munitions. It's the ultimate, the ultimate, the ultimate cynical, cynical weapon. Brutal, isn't it? Isn't it? Beyond, beyond that. Um, but uh, essentially, I, I learned that there was a whole other world out there. It was a whole other world of different people, different outlooks, different perspectives, different backgrounds. And it just opened me up because Ireland was a very, for me, Ireland, and probably and for a lot of other people, Ireland was a very narrow, grey place. So it just exposed me to a whole different world. And, then, and I made my way then from Israel to London, which again was a whole other melting pot again. I was going to say, because I mean, why, why London? What, what drew you there? Well, I, before I left Ireland, I had been introduced to the world of natural foods. Um, I, had a, I had a knee problem, and I, the, the, the conventional medical approach didn't do anything for me. I was just, I was, in fact, I was given three different diagnoses, but no treatment. And I I'd had acupuncture some years previously for a back problem and it cleared it up very quickly so i went to see this acupuncturist and at that time he was recommending all his all the patients all his patients uh change their diet to a natural foods diet and for some reason even though i'd come to him from lunch in mcdonald's i was open to it and i just literally changed my diet overnight and even though i had no idea what i was doing and as a good irish boy at the time i didn't even cook um I've, i found i just got incredible energy from this food and gradually, gradually, I'd learned how to use it a bit. But um, I knew that after Israel, I knew I would be f- making my way to London at some point. So I got some addresses from this acupuncturist of places in London where I could follow up this new interest. And um, one of them was this particular center. So there was a there was well there was a woman involved as well in bringing me from from Israel to London. But the center was also a big a big drawing drawing point. Um, and that was where I, that was where I ended up studying. So was that, did that come under a, a sort of religious banner or following banner or was it just a, no, if it had, I probably wouldn't have gone there, uh, because I'd, I'd I'd had uh, more than enough for religion for myself at that stage. Um, no, it was very much about natural foods. There would have been, there would have been, um, I guess a Zen influence, um, probably to a lesser extent a Taoist influence, but certainly a Zen influence, but it wasn't, it wasn't anything overt. It was very much about using natural foods and how to use them and then using natural medicines. And I say that was where I trained as a Shiatsu practitioner and learned to read faces. Um, so that, that just became, I guess, central to everything I did since then. Give us an overview of Shiatsu and, and in terms of, you know, what the principles and you saying you, you, you said the, the face definition came out of that or the face reading. Yeah. But, but Shiatsu is much bigger than that, surely, isn't it? Well, Shiatsu is a form of hands-on treatment. It's often referred to as acupuncture without needles in that one is using primarily thumbs, fingertips and palms to stimulate the meridians and pressure points, the same meridians and pressure points that are used in acupuncture. So it's used to treat quite a wide range of conditions 
typically it's practiced on the floor that the, the, the patient is lying on a, like on a thin futon. And the, the practitioner then is, there's a very distinct meditative element to it in that because the practitioner is on the floor, they're using body weight rather than, rather than physical strength to apply the pressure. And one, one, one learns a whole, I guess, tuning in process in terms of palpating different areas for diagnostic purposes to diagnose the, the condition of the meridians and where treatment is needed. Um, so whether one uses, so it's a combination, it can be a combination of um, very specific pressure points, individual pressure points or combinations thereof, or uh, holding into areas and almost like palm healing, um, as well as then movement of limbs, stretching, etc. So it's a combination of a variety of things, um, all geared towards the individual need at the time. Hope that doesn't sound too general or too vague. No, it makes total sense, you know, and, you know, cause like I said, I know it's, it's always good to ask the question if you're not sure. And, and that's, you know, I, I appreciate the, the clarification. So, I mean, were you very, were you able to sort of make a living out of this as, you know, cause obviously it was just as you were getting started. Yeah. I lived in London for four and a half years and I studied over that period of time. And I was also working with one of my teachers in his health food store. Actually, was actually another Irish guy. Um, so I got a lot of practice in terms of face reading initially in the, in the health food store, because as soon as somebody would come in, he would ask, okay, what's his condition? What's her condition? So that was, that was really full on. Um, but it wasn't until I moved to Hamburg in 1985 with my then girlfriend, now ex-wife who's German, um, and to, to, to work in a small, in a center in Hamburg, which was a smaller version of the place we had met and studied in, in London. So that was where I started to practice. And thankfully, they, like, even though I didn't speak German at the time, I had to learn, and I had to initially work with an interpreter. They had, um, they had a contract to uh, teach, I think, three shiatsu classes a week with a local university. And then, so I was, I was, I was, I was handed that. And then um, I started to practice there as well. And I, and I started teaching my own courses. And I also connected with the German equivalent of, I guess, the VEC in Ireland, the, um, the, the Volkshochschule. So I connected with a variety of those around northern Germany. So I built up a, a, a circuit, I guess, of places I would visit to teach weekend courses. So, so I did I actually did pretty well over there, yeah. As a culture, I mean, how did you find it, sort of Germany? Um, I find different parts of Germany are very distinct from each other. Hamburg, uh, Hamburg is one of, the old, one of the two city states in Germany and it was one of the merchant states and it prided itself on how to, certainly at that stage having more millionaires than any other region of Europe. Um, and there was a certain, uh, I suppose, general snobbery about Hamburg, but it was, I'd say it was probably the most socially cold place I've ever lived. Um, and I found that even a lot of a lot of Germans, particularly if they weren't native hamburgers, um, often found it difficult to settle there for whatever reason. Um, whereas, the, whereas like Cologne, for example, where my my ex wife comes from, I found that to be a, a really warm place, like socially warm. Um, Munich, Munich, I would say, is a lot warmer. Berlin can be so much warmer. Um, so. It depends on where one is in Germany, I guess, and how one is oneself. Um, but like I did, make, I did make some great 
long-lasting friends there. Um, but I was I equally, when it came time to leave, I was more than happy to leave. As was as was my wife then, even though she was a native native to Germany. Well, it's interesting that you know. I suppose you you pick up on different things at different times, and again, I suppose it also depends on how you are in yourself at that time as absolutely. well. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, you know. yeah. So uh, exiting Germany, then where did you head to? Back to Dublin. Yeah. So I've been. Uh, yeah. So I've lived most. That was late '88. So I've lived most of my life since then in Dublin, bar six and a half years in different parts of Wicklow. But equally, I know I won't be staying here mm. because um, even though I'm from Dublin, I don't have any particular affinity with Dublin. It just happens to be where I'm from and happens to be where I am. But I do have, I, I, have, I have huge desire to be somewhere sunnier and brighter. And I have a love of Italy in particular, and I'm slowly learning Italian. Um, so some, somewhere warmer is calling. Now, I don't know exactly how long it'll take because there isn't a set plan at the moment. Um, and they're, they're, yeah, they're, there's likely to be somebody else involved in the decision as well. So um, it's, uh, but it's, it's, it's on the cards, yes. Mm. It's, I mean, do you, do you set goals for yourself? I mean, what, what, what's your overall sort of functioning or living mantra? I mean, I'd say intentions rather than goals. Okay. Um, I do. There's a, a good friend of mine, Bill Phillips, um, created a method called future basing, which is actually quite fascinating, very powerful. And um, that basically involves, I mean, I, and I'm, I'm giving it, I'm giving it to you in very, very simplistic form. It involves looking at where one wants to be, putting a time frame on it, um, there are certain criteria one has to one has to one, one yeah so putting a time frame on it imagining visualizing etc how it would be to be there as if one were there already and then there are certain criteria that one has to one has to meet that it has to have feeling in it that has to has to, see what there has to be has to be steps that one can actually take um, that has to do it has to be described in feeling terms. Um, and, and various other various other conditions to it, and it's and it all has to be written out, um, and then uh, then worked worked back from there as if one were there already, uh, and that's a very very potent thing. So I've been using that more and more. Um, so I would, it may be a matter of semantics, but I would talk about intentions rather than goals. It's interesting, but then I suppose from a from a futuring point of view, you know, do you do you then sort of do you future base in terms of where you want to go, and are you clear on that and what you do? I've I've described a lot of my future, but I haven't put I haven't put it to a fixed location because I'm I'm open to life presenting me with options. Like I'm not saying I'm not saying it's definitely going to be Italy. It could be France. It could be Portugal, for example. It could be Croatia. I don't know. I don't know, but because they're, but the, the, it's it's very much about the quality of life I want, and I can describe I can describe the quality in detail. I can describe a lot of the 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 attributes of the environment. 
but that's not absolutely limited to one place. But I know when I connect with it, I will know it. And I know I will connect with it. Interesting. There's, there's a lot of language that I'm sort of picking up. It's, it's mm-hmm. very kinesthetic. So it's all, yeah. you know, very feeling, very touching, mm-hmm. sensing. Is that, is that, does that make sense? Absolutely. That's absolutely. Yeah. And that would be very much where I would be. That would be, I guess, central, central to me and how I, how I operate. Yeah. And so when you're, um, when you are visualizing, I mean, what are you, do you listen to yourself? I mean, do you, do you, or do you feel how you, you know, feel what's right or do what, what's your methods? Yeah. It's feeling first. It's feeling first. And I've learned, I guess one of the things I have learned over the years is that the body is a metaphor. The body is really a metaphor for how we are and the body can teach us so much if we allow ourselves to tune into it. So whether something feels right or feels off, if we're feeling stressed in the body, that's telling us something we're off, we're off course. If, if, if the body's feeling really right and easy and light and all of that, then it tells us we're very much on course, even if we don't know the specifics of our direction or exactly what's happening. But we're at ease, we're, we're, we're at ease with being, we're, we're, we are at ease with where life is at right now. Um, so I've learned, to, I've learned to pay attention to the body and to what the body is telling me. And more often than not, when the body's at ease with itself, I feel great within myself, not just physically, but I feel great emotionally, mentally, etc. And I feel, I feel more creative as well. And, and that, that expresses itself. It's not just that I feel it, I can express it. Maybe a basic question. Do, do you feel like you're in a good place? Do, do, you, do, do, you, do you feel... I know, you know, are you are you in the right place at the right time? Are you are you, are you making the use of your senses? That's maybe the best way of putting it. Increasingly, yes. Increasingly, mm-hmm. yes. And it goes back to something we were we were talking about earlier. Increasingly, opportunities are presenting to me. The more mm-hmm. I the more I align with myself, the more opportunities just come to me. Now I'm I've like over the years I've been a pretty active networker, um, and I'm I'm reasonably active on some social media um but i've 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 built over the last number of years i've built a pretty decent social and business circle of of friends and connections and people people with whom i would engage both on and offline so i'm not like just sitting in a room waiting for life to present me with stuff i am you know i am interacting uh, but the more i interact in a really light way and where i'm where i'm expressing myself in a really positive way and where i'm open to my, uh, i'm open to uh, i'm open to the best of other people and i'm open to helping them and really really sharing with them the more life is more life is meeting me absolutely well, when when do you feel in most in flow state you know when when are you at your 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 prime in terms of your core skills and and sort of abilities um, it varies. It varies. If I, um, I love running. I haven't, I haven't run for the last few weeks cause I had, I had back strain, which kept me out of action, but I do love running. And I know I'm not running competitively. I'm just running for my own pleasure. Certainly there's a flow in that. Um, I learned, um, I learned, uh, something called chi running some years ago, 
uh, did some classes with a woman called Katrina McKernan, the former European cross-country champion. She may even have been world champion. I can't remember, but she was a champion anyway. So I, I did some classes with her. So I learned a particular style of running called she running. Um, and and body still, the body still remembers that. Um, certainly when I'm, when I'm doing my work, particularly, obviously, that has been curtailed, I guess, in more recent months. But certainly when I'm working with a group of people in a room, I'm very much in flow. Um, when I'm, I guess when, I've, when I'm physically moving, I'm in flow or when I've, when I've, uh, when I've been sitting in meditation for, for a sustained period, I'm particularly doing that regularly. I'm very much in flow. And then there, there are other times when it's just simply there. Um, but it is about cultivating good habits and, and paying attention to what I know works for me and letting go of a lot that doesn't. And that letting go process, I mean, is that something that you've had to learn to do and is it something that's sort of built up and, and ebbed and flowed in time? Definitely. Yeah. I'd say, uh, I'd say it's probably something we've all had to learn to do. <laughs> um, so there's been, yeah, because there's, there's so much of, I, I don't know, my, certainly my upbringing that just didn't fit for me. And then I've, I've certainly taken a few, uh, shall we say detours through life where uh, I, I, I went to, and a few uh, few dead ends, um, so it's been a, it's it's been an ongoing it's been an ongoing learning process. Um, but the more I open up to myself, the more life meets me, and the more the more lightness I find in myself, the more joy I experience within myself, the more life says, "Hey, more of this, please." And you know, it's almost like life is calling. I can feel life like life calling me forward. Uh, because those opportunities are presenting in ways that they weren't when I was more, more stressed or, or feeling out of touch with myself. Yeah, that's quite um, revelation. Is it? It's just quite quite something to actually get to that point of, you know. I suppose it's my perception is that's a big revelation. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. But you know, to come to that point of actually uh, knowing you know, who you want to be or, or to accepting yourself and, and going through this whole process. I mean, it, uh, does that make sense? I don't know whether I'm. Yeah. Um, yeah. There, I mean, I guess, there, I guess there were times when I, I probably didn't like myself very much or didn't see great value in myself. Uh, and as I say, uh, took a few detours, uh, but something, something inside, whether it's, whether it's the fire in the belly or, the spirit, the heart, whatever it was, kept me going, and kept saying, oh, "There is, there is something better there." And now I'm seeing it more and more. Mm. And I'm, I would say, I'm a far more, I'm far more able to help other people in terms of helping them connect with what's, you know, what's deepest and best within themselves. And and so that also helps me to be very thankful for the other stuff I've gone through. Because having been there and having come through it, I can, I can see how other people. I'm, I'm not a, like I'm not I'm not a counselor and I'm not working as a therapist anymore. So I'm not getting into people's you know the deepest and darkest areas of people's psyche. But having been in some dark areas myself, I can recognise where people are at and, and saying, well, you don't actually have to go there. You don't actually have to dig. You can actually look at it from other perspectives. 
and that's been that's been probably a massive revelation that I spent a lot of time doing counseling and seeing psychologists and all of that and it's not it's not that it wasn't beneficial but it's not the only way that so often one looks at problems and explores problems rather than thinking in terms of solutions and I'd rather think in terms of solutions and where does where does one want to be and it just opens up a whole whole other array of perspectives or at least one perspective to start with it's interesting because I was going to ask you know whether you, you sort of typically are pleasure based or pain based you know and, and just I suppose in, in the general human psyche but if I've if I've understood that question correctly it's it's now very much per- pleasure-based now it is yes yeah mm. it wasn't always it wasn't mm. always but that's been that's been a huge uh, a huge a, a huge and invaluable change over the years yeah absolutely were there, were there certain times through this this again it wasn't journey what, what was it path no it wasn't path either course <laughs> the course sorry as uh, so, it was a certain standout points for you. It's certain where massive change came, you know, and, and I mean, there's, there's a particular expression I kind of like, and it, it seems to tally with a lot of people in terms of from great overwhelm comes great change. And I'm just wondering, is there certain times that you would pick out for you that have brought great change? Um, there probably have been, but a lot of them, a lot of the most significant change has been gradual. Um, there's probably a few standout moments. Um, there was one certainly with my father. Um, we weren't close when I was growing up, but then we became close towards the, in the last few years of his life. And I got married in uh, Cologne in Germany. And my parents, um, my parents and my sisters came over to the Cologne for the wedding. And I spent the morning out around just taking my father around the city of Cologne. So just to spend some time together. And we had a we had a really good conversation, but at that stage, at that, at that stage, our relationship was great. Excuse me, and we could really we could just talk really openly with each other. And he said that uh, he realised that he had made many mistakes with myself. And I've my I've two sisters. One is three years younger than me, and then the other girl is sixteen years younger. She she was born with Down syndrome. As uh, the family surprise, uh, but with myself and my next sister. He said that he realized he had made many mistakes with us growing up, um, but he had no regrets because he had done the best he could at the time. And that to me was something very profound to hear. Um, and that, that has stayed with me. Uh, it's like it's many, many years ago now, but that stayed with me because I thought, oh, I hadn't really thought of it in those, those terms. But that, that level of acceptance of self and let, letting the past be, that, that was quite profound for me. Um, and I guess then there were other things where, like uh, when I separated from my wife and family, my, my choice, that was both devastating and necessary. And I learned so much through that. Um, I didn't, I, I, I remember the day I separated and moved into an apartment, I thought I was going to have a heart attack with the stress. But ultimately, it started to open up life in a whole different way. And thankfully, uh, thankfully, I did retain great relationships with my children. Um, so there have been a series of, I guess, significant events, but a lot of them 
kind of evolved gradually to a point where everybody asked, oh, there's six months or eight months gone by or whatever, whatever period of time it was. And now, now I get it because sometimes I can be a very slow learner. What's, what's, okay. a, what's a particular superpower for you? What's, what's a, a standout quality that you have? Um, I came across a, a conversation with somebody recently and he told me about a, a Simon Sinek podcast he listened to. And Simon Sinek apparently coined, maybe it's true, I don't know whether it's true or not, he coined the term extreme listening. I can be a very good listener and not just to listen, but to, but to hear what's really going on, not just the words, but what's going on behind the words. Um, I can be very, very intuitive. Um, very intuitive in terms of like picking up what's really going on for somebody. And again, that can be just sitting in silence with them and just looking at them, making eye contact and looking at their face. Ah, ah, yeah, this is what, this is what you've said. This is what you told me, but this is really what's going on. And that's obviously something I've, I suppose I've developed or cultivated over many years. Um, Silence is another one I would say. I can sit comfortably in silence with somebody. And silence can be immensely powerful. And to be, to be able to be in silence while one is not actively thinking and the mind in overdrive, but to be able to sit comfortably in silence with somebody is, is, is a, an incredibly powerful experience. So they be the obvious ones. I mean, is there such a thing as silence for you? Because, I mean, if you're reading the situation, then there's a, <laughs> there's a dialogue, there's an intake, even though there's no potential uh-huh. exchange of physical words or yeah. noises being made, there's still a lot of communication going on, if I've understood that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But one can also, one can also transcend that. Um, I remember when my younger sister... Uh, she was probably, I don't know, a year, two year, two years old, something like that. This is my younger sister, recently girl with Down syndrome. I remember I was minding her one day. I remember making eye contact with, with her. And this may sound bizarre, but I remember with the eye contact, I knew I understood. I understood life. And that was, that transcended any kind of thinking approach. Now it was instant. It was an instant thing. And then as soon as I understood, as soon as I realized that it was gone, but that was a moment that transcended any kind of thinking and it transcended time. Um, and there are, there are certainly probably many, many experiences like that where there is simply no thinking. There's no conscious anything. It's just presence. Fascinating because at the moment I'm, I'm looking to do a sort of a mini series on the show in terms of near death experiences and, and the similar wording is used when somebody, you know, is that it's a moment of unbelievable understanding and connection and enlightenment or awakening, whatever the words that it chooses, but that moment of connection and just understanding is, is quite something. Yeah. 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 And it's nothing to do with rational thought. It's not, it's not, it's not to do with um, like intellectual working things out. It transcends that. It's a, it's an awareness. It's a state of awareness. And it's, it certainly in my experience, it fills the whole being 
and it's it's body I, I don't think in terms of soul normally but it's it's the whole body mind spirit thing it's complete unity and it's complete peace there's not there's not even a there's not even a, an awareness of being in a physical body it's 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 beyond that and whether it lasts for a millisecond or a few minutes it actually doesn't matter because time is actually when one is there time is immaterial mm. In terms of, I mean, it's interesting, you know, about the physical body, you know, and, and well, have, you know, have, do you, do you believe in terms of your, your soul, if that's, that's who you are, you know, have you been here before? Is this a, is this an ongoing lifestyle or life, lifetime or journey or course? What's, what's your overall take? Okay. Um, I would have moved in circles many years ago, particularly in London and I guess probably Hamburg even, and maybe for a while afterwards I came back here where talking about past lives was, shall we say, relatively normal. Um, I would very rarely have those kind of conversations now or even be interested in engaging in them. Um, Instinct tells me that something continues and that Mm. something has always been. like uh, there's a, I can't remember the exact wording of it, but there's a there's a quote from Erwin Schrödinger that I like, uh, something to the effect that there is only one, there is only one, um, there's only one universal consciousness, and we're all part of it. Um, and there's a what is it? Is it in the Bhagavad Gita? I can't remember. It's certainly one of the the ancient Indian scriptures where. It talks about human existence as being consciousness exploring itself. And so whether it's a life, many lives, I I don't know for certain. I really, I wouldn't even attempt to know, but something tells me that something has always been and something will always be. And I'm somehow connected to it. What, what represents itself as me in, in this life is somehow connected to it all. Well, well, thank you for sharing that because I know it's you know different levels of un- or thoughts and life changes too. Tell me what's what's a particularly is there a particularly you know proud moment for you or um, a standout moment? Well, there's probably a few. Um, the the two immediate ones that would come to mind are um, one was I, I mentioned uh, the love of playing football. And I remember playing in a Leinster Schools semi-final uh, under 18, I think it was, um, in Tolka Park in Dublin, and uh, being kicked in the head by one of my own, one of my teammates, actually one of my best friends. And I had like stud marks all over my face and just to either side of my eye. So I, I could easily have lost an eye. So I had to go off the field for treatment. But um, after treatment, I, I, I was insistent I was coming back on. And when I came back on, our support were cheering me and singing, it's great to have you back. And I felt like a warrior. And that, 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 whole, that whole warrior image, I guess, had been a big part of me growing up anyway. So I felt, I felt absolutely invulnerable just coming on. So that still, that was what, 17, 18 years of age. So that somehow still stands out for me. Um, I remember my son is my eldest child and I remember I was the first one to give him a bath 
he was born, he was the only one of the, the children born in hospital, he was born in hospital in Hamburg. And like pretty much as soon as he came out, I was, I was handed him and uh, brought him off to have his first bat, holding him in one hand. And that was, that was beyond, like, that was beyond any kind of emotion. That was utterly transcendent to, to experience because I was there for the whole birth process. Obviously, I didn't go through it, but I was there for it. Um, and to experience a new birth, you know, a new being coming into the world. And I'd actually, um, a couple of months, I think, before my wife became pregnant, I remember lying in bed one morning in Hamburg and knowing Fiona's coming. I don't know how I knew it, but I, it was like I knew him already. And there was only ever one. His name was Fionn. It wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't a question of whether it was a boy or a girl. It was Fionn. And so Fionn was born. And the, that, that experience of being, being born and holding him in one hand and just cleaning him and just holding him and just sheer wonder and joy and everything of it because it's it's every possible positive emotion you can imagine and beyond um so that really stands out um yeah there have been there have been moments of meeting people um where like i met somebody um back in february and we've we've become particularly close but we um, we had we had met briefly at an event, and then the next morning, we 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 were in this. We happened to be in the same hotel, and um, we were passing each other at a buffet, but we were about a meter apart, and we both felt as if something had hit us. Like it was such, a, it was almost like a massive physical impact, and we both realised, well, there's something going on here. And that was that was beyond powerful, and we have we have connected incredibly deeply since then. Um, so there've been a lot of different standout moments, and equally, life is increasingly a standout moment because, but because I'm opening up to myself, and because I'm opening up to the greater part of me that was, I guess, held back or restrained for so long. And finding that it's it's it just gets better and better. So what's what's a what's a guilty pleasure for you then? I don't do guilt. What's no a pleasure? Guilt. Well, what's a pleasure? <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, oh there's so many. There's so many. Um, having having a coffee with a special friend, just sitting together, really connecting. Um, there's there are different pieces of music that just touch me. And it could be like, that could be, that could be a classical piece. It could be a jazz piece. It could be flamenco. It could be reggae. It, it, like it could be any different. There's so many different things there. It could be a piece of writing. Um, like there, there are different, different poets or even novelists who would, I'd read something and Oh, it's just, it just connects with me. It just, it, it just, uh, again, this, that word transcendent comes to mind, just a transcendent, uh, feeling or impact. Um, 
certain people will have that impact on me. I just meet them. I, I, didn't even have to, I don't even have to meet them. I think of them. And I just, wow, just the sheer, the sheer joy of knowing they're in my life and knowing I'm in their life is, um, is beyond words. So there, so there are so many pleasures there. And increasingly, um, increasingly, I'm just finding pleasure in the simplest of things. Um, like cleaning can be a cleaning can be a wonderful meditation where you just I don't want to, I don't want to take it up as a profession but it can be just the most wonderful meditation and then to feel you've got it done and the place looks so much nicer and neater. Um, walking can be such a such a pleasure. So there's so many that and um, they're multiplying. What what would be a, a sort of a quiet place for you? I mean, you mentioned walking there. I mean, is there other areas that you would go to clear the mind, sort of go further? You mean physically or? Sure. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, there, there are places in the world that are that have particular qualities for me. Um, like my, my background there is a place called Malchesney on Lake Garda, Upper Lake Garda. And I would have been there many times with an ex-partner. And that was, that was a very, very special place for me. I haven't been there for several years, but that's, that's one of those special places, which is why it's there as my, my backdrop. Um, Kalini Hill is a, is a very special place. Glen the Lock is a very special place. Um, but it's really, it's really, it's really where, where I am in myself that determines. The more ease I have within myself and the more open I am, to myself and to life, the easier it is to be almost anywhere. And is there any particular books or anything you'd recommend for people that, you know, has been standout for you or to just good reads? Okay. Um, yeah, there's one, one that goes back a long way for me is the, the Tao Te Ching. And that's, that's what I, I probably don't come back to as often as I, as I would like to, but it's, it's one that never goes away. Um, but yeah, I've, like I said, I was a voracious, I've, I probably don't read as much now. I was a voracious reader through most of my life. Like my, that was one of the gifts my parents gave me. They introduced me to, uh, they, they, they got me to join a library, I, I think as soon as I started school. So I was borrowing books like from the age of five like I'd read, I'd read all of P.G. Woodhouse by the time I was 10, I think, for example, uh, because I loved his humor, I loved his descriptiveness. Um, so, just, just, uh, so I'm just glancing at the bookshelf here, um, see what immediately stands out. Um, there's probably so many different books in so many different genres, really. Um, like, it, it may sound weird, but one of my favorite books of all time is the Penguin Medical Encyclopedia. I just found that absolutely fascinating. I love dipping into it. Um, there's another book called Uncertainty. Um, what is it? Uh, sorry, I'm just looking to see it. On, I know it's somewhere on the shelf. Uncertainty, the, sorry. Uh, I think it's called the, the subtitle. I think it's the fight for the soul of, so I'll just get it and check it. So accurate about it um einstein heisenberg bohr and the struggle for the soul of science and that was that was the story of the struggle between 
um, if you like, conventional physics and quantum mechanics as it was. And it was the story of the dialogue between so many of these scientists and the personality, the conflicts and the questioning and the, the back and forth. Um, and I just, I just absolutely love that book. Um, Born to Run is a book I love by a guy called Christopher McDougall. Um, that's, that's about the, you know, the greatest race never, never recorded or never reported. Um, but it tells, it, it's a, it, I think he's a, he's a superb writer, McDougall, but it tells a lot about, like one of the central characters in it is um, Scott Jurek, who was a legend in the, the ultra marathon, ultra runner uh, community. Um, but it's a story, it's a story about a race in, in canyons in, you know, the depths of Mexico and the various characters, but it also tells about the history of running and the history of struct, human structure in terms of why we run and all of that. And I, that's a book I've read two or three times, and that fascinates me. Um, and it, that, that restored for me the, the, the desire to run, which I'd kind of lost for, for a period of time, and that feeling of just the sheer joy of it. So there's three or four books from widely different perspectives but that's partly also how my mind works because my mind tends to work more as a kaleidoscope than in any kind of linear linear way no it's awesome because i mean i suppose even with the this, you know the scott Derrick stuff and and you know the born to run is like chi running probably comes into that as yeah. well in terms of there's a great takeaway because it's a book i do i must say i love as well and my takeaway from that was flow and that's kind of what I'm, I'm also picking up through you as well, is that, you know, getting into a flow state. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that can be, that can be in any area of life, like um, uh, in the, the area of positive psychology, like uh, Chick Chen Mihai has written a lot about that and, and flow, flow in, in the business world. And that's something I'm increasingly looking to bring through in my work. I'm not, I'm not where I want to be with it yet in terms of being able to express it and in terms of being able to express it, not just with clarity, but in terms of putting it into some kind of coherent structure. But it's certainly part of what's not, that's part of the, I guess the fire in my belly, that that's something I want to, I want to find the way to do because I've seen so much the benefit of it within my own life and increasingly I'm seeing the benefit of it in terms of my own, my, my engagement with life, my interaction with people and, and, and the way opportunities then present, you know, somehow miraculously, miraculously are out of, out of thin air when mm. one was in that state. Definitely. So tell us in, in one or two words then, I mean, what's, what's your fire in the belly? The immediate term, the immediate word that comes to mind is laughter. And in fact, two words, laughter and joy, laughter and joy, that I feel that within me. I just, when, when, I, when I think of that term, fire in the belly, that's what comes to mind, laughter and joy. And that's, um, I have the title for my next book whenever, whenever it starts to be written, and it hasn't started yet, but the title is there, and it's called The Joyful Warrior. Heart, what is it, heart, uh, heart, uh, heart lessons or some heart lessons for magical living, something, something like that. So, it's joy is at the center of it all. Absolutely. Yeah. That's awesome. I love that you have the title because I mean, it's such a great way of doing it. And, and, uh, 
it's almost a form of visualization and, and you know what you mentioned there in terms of uh future but ba- you know future basing as well here's yeah, the book absolutely. here's the title don't yeah. know what's going on behind but <laughs> the mm-hmm. title looks great yeah i yeah. love it is there anything you'd like to sort of put out there in terms of you know really sort of any thoughts you've had at the moment or where you're at that you'd like to sort of communicate out yeah, very. I mean, I probably, I probably said it already, but quite simply, the more, like I said, I've, I've been a slow learner. I've taken, I've taken a very circuitous route to where I am, and um, in retrospect, I've learned so much from doing that. But now I've decided, okay, now I just want to get on with it. So what I've, what I'm finding increasingly is the more I open to myself and let go, like life for me is a process of unlearning as much as learning. And the more I unlearn and release, the more I'm open to learning without the, without the, without the triggers from the past. Um, so I can have conversations now with people where they might have been, I might have found them contentious in the past uh, because of something they would say or their perspective where now I'm thinking, oh, that's interesting. And I'm not, I'm not reacting internally or externally. I'm just allowing it to be. Um, so the more I open up to myself and relax within myself and feel that joy that's just inherent within me, the more life meets me, the more opportunities just present. And it, there's, a, there's a magic to that. But it, it's taken me a long time to get to it, but increasingly I'm experiencing it. And um, now it's, oh, yes, yes, please, more of that. That's, I mean, to, to almost to be life, you know, to be, you know, there and, and to, to be part of it is, that's awesome. You know, and, and the way you explain that is, is, is great. It's very, and I, it resonates with me, I must say, you know, and I must say it, it's, it's sort of, it's great to hear it. You know? Yeah, it's a lot more fun. It's a lot more yeah. fun. Yeah. So tell me, how can, how can people follow you, hunt you down, track you down? <laughs> read you know <laughs> okay um i have a website which is actually in transition at the moment it's because there was the identity i had on it and there's the identity i've started to put on it but it's very much sort of halfway it's a halfway house at the moment but the, w- the website for what it's worth is clearsightcommunications.com clearsightcommunications is all one word uh you can find me on linkedin as joseph mcguire uh, for business community, or you can find me on Facebook either as Joseph McGuire or on my Clearsight Communications page. Now I am on Twitter, but I'm not particularly active there. And to be honest, I don't get Twitter. Yeah, it's 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 hard to keep up and and also ensure that it's adding value to your life too. So absolutely, absolutely, uh, as yeah. always, it's different parts. So, Joseph, it's been absolutely awesome talking to you. So I, I thank you for your time. And uh, yeah, listen, I've I've learned uh, a lot, and uh, yeah, I look forward to uh, hearing more from the future and where you're coming from. So thank you, thank you so much, Pete. Really enjoyed it. Well, that was another great episode of Fire in the Belly. You know, this really wouldn't be possible without our great guests taking the time to share their personal journeys. And boy, boy, sometimes it is personal. It's an absolute pleasure to have that and then to hear the journeys that people have been on. We've loads more episodes coming up soon and it's always a pleasure to have guests on. If you do happen to know anyone with true fire in their belly, please reach out to us so we can share their journey, lessons and successes. 
So, all that's left to say is have a great day, live with fire in your belly, and be the mightiest version of you. 